0: Good evening. Good evening. Is this on? Yes. Next Monday, the Friends of the Book Arts Press will sponsor a program in memory of Alan Asif of the SLS class of 1983 until his early death in 1986, cataloger at the Grolier Club. There will be remarks by Robert Nykirk of the Grolier Club and by his classmate Isaac Gewirtz and then a lecture by me. This is in no sense a memorial service for Alan, but it celebrates the various contributions made to the Friends of the Book Arts Press by Alan's classmates under the, uh, with the suggestion of Isaac Gewirtz. So that's next Monday, and who knows where it'll be. We've been fairly peripatetic all semester. I suspect it'll be in 5.05. And then the last lecture of the spring series will be on Monday, May 2nd. The following Monday, Charles Benson from the Department of Older Printed Books at Trinity College, Dublin, talking about the early 19th century Irish book trade. There is a Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter which went to press at 4.30 this afternoon. (laughs) and which uh... will be mailed tomorrow which gives the details of the Benson lecture uh, for those of you who are friends michael turner is not only a friend of the book arts press but also an extremely old friend he spent the semester working in and out of the school of library service in 1974-75, i think and uh has lectured here probably uh, as many or more times than any other uh, speaker with the possible and only the possible exception of John Dreyfus. He has talked to us about various aspects of the Bodleian Library over the years, reflecting the many jobs he's had in Bodleian as head of Special Collections and more recently as head of conservation. And he gives an update, an update tonight on uh, the conservation at Bodley in context of the progress that has been made there over the past ten years. Michael Turner. Thanks very
1: much. It's nice to be back again. Um, I was very pleased when Terry said that we were meeting in what I think of as the lounge. I suppose it is the lounge. I'm sorry, yes. The exa- I, I thought it might have a rather grander title than when I last saw it. <laughs> well, in the early days it used to be in here and very informal with people sat on the floor and, and I used to like that much better than the schoolroom atmosphere of down the passage. But it's, uh, as I see, got rather grand. Well, uh, I said to someone coming on the corridor, "It's not a lecture; it's a talk, and it really is." I let me just say that we, coming from an institution like I do, we can always find anniversaries to celebrate, and I'm actually here. Uh, in America, because last week we had a reception in Washington to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the library, which of course you all know is a bit of a cheat. What it is really is the 500th anniversary of the first reader, I suppose, and the completion of the building, and the first readers in Duke Humphrey's library, which does the first university library as such, the first provision by the university to provide a central library, 1488. Uh, that gives us the nice, if we live long enough, some of us, that gives us the nice uh, ironic uh, situation that in about twen- 17 years' time, no, not that long now, 13 or 14 years' time, we'll be able to celebrate our 400th anniversary. Um, And the librarian at present is getting a great deal of enjoyment out of telling everybody that we are computerising, we're starting on our 500th anniversary and we intend to finish it by our 400th. (laughs) Uh, Conservation in Bodley is only ten years old in the sense that there has only been a conservation section or a specifically defined conservation group in the library for ten years. But, of course, I don't wish you to think we've only been caring for the books for ten years, even having a general boundary, uh, We've had one, I suppose, through this century within the walls of the library. But it is ten years ago this year. I was spending this time of the year last year in Berkeley knowing that I came back from teaching bibliography in Berkeley uh, to become head of conservation. And I sometimes think that's about the last time I saw a book. Uh, um, I think I need my glasses. I'm going blind. Um, I'm always rather embarrassed about talking on the subject of conservation administration. And I don't want to sound patronising, but it always has seemed to me that basically it's just a matter of common sense and a matter of good housekeeping and a love of books. And I have actually given a talk in which I said that... um, If we trained librarians in the old way, um, I was once asked to give a talk on the curatorial role of librarianship and conservation, and I thought that was a very strange request because it seems to me any curatorial librarian worth his salt uh, would automatically assume that conservation was part of his job. And I think it's a sad reflection in many ways Uh, that there has been a period that we've gone through in all our major libraries, I think, where the curators have become perhaps too grand to be concerned with the everyday business of caring for the books. And almost a new profession has had to grow up uh, in response to that failure. Um, All my conservation talks seem to begin with a homily, really, on, well, of course, it depends entirely On the sort of library you're in, or the sort of library you're representing, or whatever you're working in. Uh, It seems self evident that what we can do and what we should do in conservation in the Bodleian is going to be totally different to what even a departmental library in Oxford is going to do, and certainly what a public library in the provinces is going to do. We have different jobs to do as libraries, and it seems to me very obvious. That our conservation uh, solutions uh, will be different and our conservation programs will be different. On this trip, I've been reading, or rereading, I should say, or attempting to reread Proust. I like to find a, a nice thick volume that will keep me going all the time rather than accumulate a number of books on the journey. And yesterday, you'll not believe this, but yesterday on the train from Philadelphia, I came across a sentence which it seemed to me, with a little bit of twisting, uh, could provide a theme for today. Well, it's not what I'd like to bring out today, really. In that passage on place names, which acts as a link between his account of Odette, Swan's Odette for love, and his own love for Swan's daughter Gilbert, he says, The countries which we long for occupy a far larger place in our actual life, than the country in which we happen to live to be. And I would like to suggest that, perhaps, if I dare say in these walls, in the academic world of library schools, in the literature of conservation, and dare I say it, in the minds of many bench conservators, there's too much occupation with the countries for which we long. And perhaps that's right, and perhaps it's creditable in library schools. But the hard fact is, and I'm afraid it is, that as soon as you enter any particular job, it's the reality of the country in which you happen to be that will be your daily concern, that will determine the opportunities open to you and will circumscribe all your actions. You may find yourself working with structures of which you disapprove, with colleagues whose ideas and skills for which you have little time but they will be all that's available to you and the compromising will start straight away. It follows that the things which have concerned and worried me in conservation, in my conservation experience, which is really all that I can share with you, will have been largely determined by the situation I found myself in at Bodley, by the Bodleyan experience of the past decade, And nowhere will these circumstances or experience have been an identical one for anyone else in other places or in other countries. Uh, I hope that those of you who are already practicing conservation administration may well recognize, uh, recognize similarities with some of your concerns. And who knows, we may in the end draw some comfort from the fact that we do indeed share some of the same problems in the different countries that we occupy, many of you will have heard Bodley's librarian earlier this year or late last year, uh, and I don't want to wish—I don't wish to go over familiar ground—but just I think you must just allow me uh, to recite some of the basic facts of library life in Oxford and in the Bodleian. The Oxford library system reflects the devolved nature of the university. In library terms, there's really a four-tier structure. Uh, The central university libraries, of which there are three, the Bodleian Library, which is the Copyright Deposit Library, of course, the Ashmolean Library, which is the library of the Ashmolean Museum, deals with classics and history of art, and the Taylorian Institute Library, <coughs> which deals with modern language literature. There are then faculty and departmental libraries for more or less every subject in the university you care to mention. If there's a new pro- professor appointed in a new subject next week, you can bet there'll be a new library in six months' time. There are then 30-odd college libraries, perhaps 40 or 50 faculty departmental libraries. There are then the college libraries, and there may be 35 or so of those. Now, of course, the colleges are totally autonomous units. Uh, They're part of the university, uh, but they are not the university, as it were. And the university cannot tell the colleges what to do uh, within their libraries or how they should function as libraries in any way, nor do they provide the money for those libraries. Uh, I've said in the past, and nobody's ever objected, that it's a little, I understand, as I understand the federal system here, the college, if you think of the colleges as the states, they have their own, uh, as it were, laws for certain aspects of life, but occasionally the federal government steps in and takes over certain aspects, and it's the same with the colleges and the university, really. And these libraries are spread over a hundred or more different sites within the centre of Oxford, and even now a little outside Oxford. If we exclude the college libraries, uh, the book stock of these university libraries probably is somewhere around 6.5 million volumes. Uh, And it's currently being augmented perhaps at the rate of 160,000 volumes a year. There are probably some 400 people employed in those libraries, about 100 of which we would call academic-related, which I suppose is the equivalent of professional staff to you. Uh, Though, of course, it's a sign of the times that many of those 300 so-called clerical staff uh, probably have PhDs and library qualifications too. The UGC, which is the main university fund-granting body in the United Kingdom, the University Grants Commission, which is just about to be abolished by Mrs Thatcher. Um, In the 84-85... All my figures are roughly 85 figures today. Um, The documents haven't yet appeared since then, so it's not easy to know what current figures are. But in 85... Oxford was reported to be spending by the UGC on library provision something just short of six and a half million, uh, sorry, six thousand, six and a half thousand K. That is about seven point two percent of its total recurrent expenditure each year in Oxford about 7.2% of the total recurrent expenditure in Oxford was spent on its libraries. Now, you would have to compare that perhaps with Cambridge at 6.8% and with the average for English universities of 3.8%. So, in a sense, Oxford is very uh, good on the proportion of its budget it gives to libraries in terms of the rest of English universities. Uh, That isn't to say it gets the same amount for its money because, as you will see, some of our local circumstances, particularly in the Bodleian, make it a very expensive operation indeed. And the Cambridge figure of 6.8% certainly, I suspect, gets them a return for their money equivalent to what we are getting for ours. Of the Oxford... uh, library budget, about 60% is spent on salaries, whereas at Cambridge it's much lower than that, it's 60-40 for us, and it's 57-53 or something like that at Cambridge. Now 70% of the Oxford budget comes to the Bodleian Library, so we are really in the dominant position. Having said that, a recent Committee of inquiry into Oxford Library Provision said that the UGC had signally failed to acknowledge any special heritage factors in its grant to the University. And from a conservation point of view, that's rather a serious matter. The Bodleian, you probably know more about. It consists of the central complex, the central Bodleian and several dependent libraries. The Radcliffe Science Library in which we house our scientific materials, the Law Library Rhodes House Library which is Commonwealth and American History we still haven't recognised they've changed Um, Indian Institute Library which is a relic from the days of empire when we had a special library for the subcontinent of India that still remains so And now, not a dependent library, but another facility, is a book repository some 10, 12 miles outside the centre of Oxford. In Bodleian terms, who knows? We talk about having 4.9 million in 85 uh, volumes. About 17% of those, something like 850,000 volumes, are on open shelves in reading rooms and they are equivalent, I suppose, to your open stack materials. The rest, in other words, over 80% of the Bodleyburg stack is in closed accessed areas. Something under just under a million maps, uh, something around a quarter of a million microforms. 79 miles of shelving, we say, what it means, 47,000 current serials received, And I think this is an important statistic, if you like statistics. Because of that closed access, that large proportion of closed access, of course we have an enormous circulation problem within the library. I to say quickly, those of you who don't realise, we don't lend books out of the buildings. You can only read books in the building. But that doesn't say we don't have a circulation problem. Each year the book stacks in the new library are responding Uh, at the rate to about um, 275,000 book orders a year. Um, It's changed slightly. Uh, We seem to have a decline after the end of the Vietnam War. I don't know if there was a connection there. Uh, We don't seem to have quite as many American students these days as we used to. Um, And obviously the costs in the A's late 70s and 80s of foreign travel and foreign education have risen enormously in England Um, so there isn't quite the pressure there was say 10 years ago on that it dropped quite radically for a while but it's now creeping up again there are 24 reading rooms in Bodley, 24 separate reading rooms and I'm emphasizing this circulation and the number of reading room problems because I'd like to come back to it from a conservation point of view. 24 reading rooms with over 2,000 reader seats. The 84 budget for Bodley was an expenditure of just un- under 5,000... Uh, and just under 5 million, sorry. 4,834,000. 4, As you know, s- the greater chunk of that already went on salaries. Books and periodicals were uh, one million. 82,000 and conservation was 109,000 so conservation in 85 not including salaries I hasten to add uh, not the conservation salaries but the the materials budget, binding budgets and so on, were running at about 10% of the amount being spent on new books and periodicals Uh, now having said that of course don't forget that to that cost of new books and periodicals, you add the unmentionable or the unfigurable subsidy of being a copyright deposit library. That's only really foreign books and periodicals that we're talking about. Well, the photographic sections of the library are producing over half a million prints a a year in response to customers' orders microfilm exposures just under half a million, and then something like a quarter of a million for other things as well, other kinds of photographic orders. So there's a lot of photography going on, but I'll come back to that. None of it is, as it were, conservation-generated. It's all in response to customers' orders for individual material. So conservation section itself was set up in 1978. Most of you will know the history already in this country. uh, Attention was being drawn to it in a big way. In the mid-1970s, the British Library had commissioned a special report and we were following quickly on behind the British Library, I suppose. Uh, There were some peculiar circumstances which I've talked about before and I don't think I need to go into too much, but basically there had been a lot of building in the new library and this had caused real problems with air conditioning and with the introduction of dirt and those of us, like myself, who were in charge of special collections or the manuscript collections, David Basie was then Keeper of Western Manuscripts, got very agitated and... Uh, I think, although the library was already uh, thinking in terms of some sort of conservation effort, it was this that really finally pushed us over into doing something about it. And I suppose I'd open my mouth once too often. Um, What did I inherit, or what was I given? I don't have a job description, Uh, academic related staff as such don't have job descriptions yet in Bodley, no doubt it will come. Uh, We have contracts or we have letters of appointment. My letter of appointment just said you're in charge of the upkeep of and the storage of the books throughout the whole system, Uh, which is a little bit of a laugh because I have no staff in about three quarters of the system. But I was given charge of the new library book stacks, and that's the main book storage area for the whole library. Um, That meant that I had to take on the book service, this problem of the circulation from the book stacks to these 20-odd reading rooms. Now, that didn't seem to me really part of my job, and I didn't particularly want it, but the only problem was that all the staff in the bookstack were involved in that book service. And if I said, well, I'll take the bookstacks, but I don't want the book service, I'd have had eleven stack very much like yours down the centre of the building, because we follow the same pattern. We have a sort of corridor around and floors around a central bookstack. I'd have had a bookstack like that and not a single member of staff to do anything in it. So I had to take... Um, the book service on just to get some staff. Now it's always been my intention to try and build up that staff so that we could divide responsibility that we could split off, for want of a better world I call housekeepers away from book service pages in your vocabulary I think um, so that we could I could say right, book service go away to somewhere else, read your services or something like that, but not conservation. not saying i wouldn 't want to have a say in what happened in the book service. I made it fairly clear when I was uh, put into the job that if I was taking this job on, I was going to have a say everywhere I chose to have a say it hasn 't always been very popular um, But we've worked on that premise, and I must say I think anybody running conservation in a major library must work on that premise. You must have the ability to move around in the library and uh, say, you know, this isn't good for the books, and believe you me, it won't make you popular. So the book service, the book stacks were my responsibility. Having mentioned them, let's forget them for the time being. There was a general bindery. Uh, It was a bindery that I suppose, well certainly Chris Clarkson, who we'll come back to, and our conservators today would regard as a trade bindery. Although everybody in it had never worked, there was only one binder in it who'd ever worked outside the library. They'd all been apprenticed in their youth in that bindery. They were all craft bookbinders in a sense, they, and they, all di- they did any repairs that were done to book bindings up till 1978. But basically it was regarded as a place where periodicals could be bound, modern textbooks could be bound and so on. In other words, it was the general binding end of the, of the job. There were two young people... Uh, helping a part-time lady with paper repair in the Department of Western Manuscripts. Um, This was a sort of in-house operation which Western Manuscripts had set up themselves. And just in 77 or so, David Vesey had managed to build them a special workshop in the Clarendon Building, uh, which was one of the central site buildings. Unfortunately, a building unconnected underground with any of the other buildings so anything that went to it had to be carried across a main road um, and so on not a very convenient side but I'm afraid that workshop still exists in that side there was a a lady who was a part time lady who came in every day uh, put a sheet of linen around a room stuck some maps to it, went home and then came in the morning after and cut them down and did another lot so we had a map mounter. And then I was told that I could, of course, appoint a deputy because I made it very clear that I didn't know anything about bench work and I needed some very strong uh, support on that side. I never thought that uh, in 78 that the support I would get would be as strong as it turned out to be. Uh, in 79, just no, in 78, just as I took on the job, uh, the... English Society of Archivists had an instructional meeting in Oxford and I'd been in the job about a fortnight Uh, and Chris Clarkson who you all know um, came to that meeting and I talked to Chris largely on the terms of you know Chris you must know some nice young person who I could employ and he said I'd rather like to come home Um, so I can honestly say I don't think a senior appointment has ever been made as quickly and bodily. I rang the librarian up that night. We had an interview before Chris left the country about two days later, and he was appointed but still had a year's contract to serve here. So it was a year later in '79 that Chris joined us, and as many of you will know, he, he left us last year. Well, I think there were probably people in this room who said to me in '78, you won't keep him for two years so I think we probably did very well although it was a great disappointment to us last year when he decided to move on but he's been absolutely central to everything that's gone on in those ten years and the programs which he has set up I'm sure will be historically seen to be of enormous importance in the library and we will pursue those for decades to come if we get the money there was no initial grant unlike the British Library which was given several million pounds to set up conservation, TCD, Trinity College Dublin and the National Library in Scotland there was no additional grant I was just given a job and told get on with it and I must say that year before Chris came I spent most of the time trying to find out what monies there were around I'd go to the bindery and say well, you know, where do you get your money for your materials? And he'd say, well, we go to the secretary and sometimes we get the materials, sometimes we don't. Nobody could define uh, particularly what the money was, except there was the binding grant. Now, at that time, the binding grant was 100%, more or less, spent on sending material out to commercial binders both by the central library and by the dependent libraries. And I'll come back to that one. Um, Just about then, some nice clergyman, who I have no idea who he was, called the Reverend Norman, died, and his name will be honoured forevermore because the secretary said, well, you can have the £4,000 he's left you. Uh, and we'll put it into a, a fund called the Norman Fund from which you can draw. And that Norman Fund has been my slush fund ever since in the sense that if I get any windfalls or the library gets any windfalls, they very often get put into that fund and I can use it for conservation purposes. And the library's been quite good. They usually keep it topped up so that roughly there's about £10,000 there any year. And as we've been quite enterprising in certain areas, we top it up too. So I've always been able to just... And it's one of those funds that doesn't end with the financial year. So I don't... You know, I can carry things over. And if I send bills out towards the end of the financial year, I make sure they're paid into that fund so I haven't lost the money. (coughs) Now... Uh, this was a crucial point in a sense because it was perfectly clear by the time Chris arrived that if we were going to do anything if we were going to create workshops if we were going to do any more work than was already being done in-house the only way we could finance it was to use the money being spent on commercial binding now by 1980 uh, the then administrative head of the library, uh, not the librarian, the secretary, we call it, uh, who had previously been responsible with, uh, for the general binder until I was appointed, he'd adopted a policy, which I think was quite right, that he got better value for money inside than outside. <coughs> and so he built himself into a situation where every now and again he would use some of that money to employ another binder or to start to be to be real to be true uh, to start a new apprentice in the bindery and gradually he built up the strength of the general bindery to the point where all the open shelf material in the central bodily and not in the dependent libraries was being bound in house and the only material that the central library was spending its money on with commercial binding was from the bookstacks. Chris and I looked at that material and decided that the quality of the binding that was coming in was getting worse and worse, that the cost of it was rising very dramatically at that time, and we decided in our own minds that we would stop sending any of it out in fact, we'd stop binding it. We'd just box it. So I suppose at that stage we would be paying something in the region of £12 for a volume of a periodical being bound. And instead of that, we'd put it in an archival quality box that perhaps cost us 60p. I expected the library to rise up in horror at this. I thought the librarians would react very strongly to it, but they didn't and what was more surprising to me not one of those commercial binders ever came back to me and said why have you stopped sending us binding they never seemed to notice which probably and, and it was at a period when commercial boundaries were going to the wall pretty quickly in England which perhaps accounts for it um, but that's what we did in 1980 we just decided to stop binding all the bookstack materials and start boxing it instead. And so one whole thrust ever since then has been in what you might call a preservation operation of boxing material and protecting the material uh, in the bookstacks. And very quickly uh, Chris designed, instigated, found suppliers of, did everything, what we call a commercial box in a series, in a 20 odd sizes, uh, and uh, we set up these commercial boxes which we could buy in flat, make up ourselves, they were cut to sizes and creased, and we just made them up and stapled them, and the whole library was encouraged to use them, and that's remained the case ever since, of course I can't always keep up supplying them at the rate they want to use them. But nevertheless, that's what happened. Now, there was clearly some material in the bookstacks that we had to monitor, and we decided we'd have to bind. But the general boundary has coped with that. The outstanding problem on that front has been those dependent libraries, because every year when that money is dished out, that 100,000, roughly speaking, as it is now, is dished out immediately about 53 or four. 51% 51% roughly, of that goes straight to those dependent libraries who are still sending their material out to be bound. And two of those libraries, the science library and the law library, get fairly hefty chunks because most of their material is on open access and we feel, still feel that's necessary to bind that material. What I want to do, and we've costed this out, if I could get three more bench spaces in our general bindery, we could cope with that binding, and three more members of staff, we could cope with that binding. And we could do it cheaper. We'd have money to spare. That money would pay for the three additional binders, it would pay for the extra materials and still give us a little more to work with. So, on the top of our priority list is the refurbishing of the general boundary in order to create more space in it so that we can make that next step and do away with the commercial binders altogether what's more we really don't control that i must admit we haven't been able to control those dependent libraries there are still librarians if i can not quite put as much venom into it as chris does but there are still librarians out there controlling that binding and we don't really um, feel it's adequate. So that was how we did it and from the money we saved by doing that we set about building workshops, buying new materials trying to find the right materials improve the materials we were using improve the techniques we were using and so on. But because we did not have these workshops, our initial uh, task was to set up a sort of boxing operation. And Chris developed that because alongside the commercial box operation, he introduced his phase boxing programs. Uh, And I don't need to explain what they are. The individually made wraparound boxes, which are commonplace now in most libraries, And we built a special workshop just to do that. That was the first workshop we built. And that is still a very important contribution being made just by that phase boxing program. It's gone at varying paces through the years. Um, Basically, we've only ever had one binder running that room. He doesn't make phase boxes himself. He's the binder who makes the very top quality Boxes, you know, the the cloth-covered archival book box forevermore. He's the man who does those, and he has uh, uh, an untrained conservation person, I mean, not a trained conservation people, uh, just a person taken straight from school who was trained to make fake boxes. And at one point we had a second person, but we're back down to one again. Now, of course... So that helped us to begin, and we were very conscious of this protecting of the books because of the problem I referred to earlier, which in my opinion, it's certainly in the Bodleian, and I suspect in other places, the main, I'm convinced more and more that our main problem is the mechanical damage done by handling we talk a lot about the intrinsic instability of the materials which is going to lead to their own destruction we talk a lot about environmental problems and all these are interconnected I know you can't separate any one of them out but I'm convinced above all else that that mechanical damage done by handling is the worst problem we have to face up to and. I ought to say, and I think perhaps Terry might bear me out on this, it might seem strange saying this over here, but I do really believe that, at least at the present point in time, I'm not saying we don't have problems ahead of us, but I don't think our brittle paper problem is as massive as yours. I I don't know what the reasons are. I suspect our paper never got quite as bad as yours got, say, about the turn of the century. And I don't think we've subjected our paper. We haven't cooked it as long as you've cooked yours. Let's put it crudely. Uh, And your climate, of course, in certain areas, has got much more extremes to it than ours has. And I think you have a much worse problem than we have. Now, of course, we've got the problem because we bring in stuff from the Indian subcontinent, we bring in stuff from Latin America, and that gives us a problem. But I don't think our own native materials are as bad. That's not to say, unless some libraries do something about it, they won't be in 30 years' time. But on that side, we didn't have the money. We couldn't get into experimenting research about deacidification, we decided that wasn't our job, we'd leave that to the big boys and when they'd stop blowing themselves up and other <laughs> things, uh, we, we would cash in, we would ride on their bikes. Now to be fair, uh, we'd done it with the computer, you see, we led the field in the computer and people rode on our backs. and we are still waiting to be a computerised library. So I wasn't going to make that mistake and uh, in a sense well you know the situation better than I do um, we're still waiting for that solution I suppose and when it comes we'll have to raise money somehow to install some sort of system but we haven't really got involved in the problems of mass deacidification de- and so on in bodily on the environmental side we have a problem As I mentioned, we've just celebrated the 500th anniversary of one of our buildings. Um, We have buildings as recent as 1980, one of the modules in the repository. We're hoping to have a new module in the repository next year, so we're still building. We have never abandoned a building that we've appropriated. So we've got buildings of all shapes, sizes and ages... Uh, many of which are historic monuments, some of which are amongst the glories of English architecture, all of which are a centre for tourists. Um, And as I mentioned, we had this 1930s book stack like yours, which the fire regulations had made mincemeat of any air conditioning or air control system that was already installed. So we had a real problem there, And I suppose, in essence, we still have a real problem with most of it. Chris and I, first of all, tried to argue for an automated monitoring system. This was dismissed out of hand about 1981 as being far too expensive. But we kept nagging away. And about 1984, the curators... uh, employed a consultant to tell us what we should do about the new library bookstacks. And he came up in 1984 with a proposal for a new air conditioning system for the 11 floors of the bookstack, and it would cost a million pounds. The curators fled from that in terror and said how much it costs just for the one floor where we have our rare books and manuscripts. And that floor was sandwiched between all the others. (laughs) Uh, I, and it was the first floor underground, there are three underground floors. I persuaded them to go back to him and say, well, how much would it cost for the three floors underground? And he put a proposal and a plan forward that was just under half a million for those three floors. But that would include the plant on the roof and the duct down through the whole building for the three floors. Uh, to some extent, rare boot schoolers lived through that with me because every year when Terry used to say, come and teach, I had to say, well, you know, when you start rare boot school, we've got builders coming in and I might be, might not be able to come. Uh, but in the end, we have air-conditioned those three floors underground. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's cost more than the million that the whole thing was going to cost in 84 Uh, But it's about 60% of the bookstack area has a new air conditioning system in it. And so far as I can see, it was commissioned finally about November for the last of the three floors. And so far as we can see, it looks like it's going to be quite good. Uh, It's certainly moving cool air around in a way none of us can ever remember. It feels comfortable to me. I only go in for a few minutes each day. I have possible revolution brewing in the stack because they're freezing to death, having been used to it in the upper 70s for years on end. Um, We still haven't a monitoring system. So it's all... actually managed to go uh, at one point in the installation I thought I'd convince them and we all went off the surveyors, the consultants and myself to look at a beautiful, oh it was marvellous it was like the best toy I've ever seen Beautiful colour monitors where I could just press the screen for a floor and a plan of the floor came up, and all the detectors were shown. And then I'd say that detector, and it would say it was last replaced in August, and the spare part for it is in bin number something or other. You know, it was a beautiful system, and it was in three months it went from forty thousand to over a hundred thousand, so that got dropped on the way. So we've tackled the environment to some extent. What we can ever do about the old buildings is a problem. And of course we've created some nice new problems for ourselves too because we're now keeping our, nice, our manuscripts in a nice cool environment on one side of the road and shipping them across the road to hot sweaty reading rooms on the other. And I don't need to tell you what that's doing to the pigment layers on the medieval manuscripts that's why we need to monitor we need far more monitoring still to be uh, installed the uh, problems that have worried me most I suppose as, as the head of conservation have clearly been concerned with finance uh, it's been my job in a sense because I'm sure David Basie went into all this earlier in the year but 1980 was the worst year of our lives for my generation I mean I suppose we came into libraries in the late 50s early 60s we brought up in the good years of expansion adding to the collections and then suddenly in 1980 everything went sour and I don't ever believe I'll see good years again Um, it's 1980 to 1984 we had to make cuts of 4.5 percent across the board 1986 to 1987 we started a new series of cuts which have to lose us another 11 percent by 1991 uh now you know maybe in 1980 she had a point uh there was some fat around the place, but by 1986 there was no fat around the place, and to start cutting 11% again uh, really is having horrendous results. Um, I think Chris was so successful in his early years of alerting people in Bodley to the problem and in the university to the problem that the curators from 81, 82, have never taken any convincing. Um, we've been the only section in the library during the first half of the 80s that received level funding. Every other section had its grants cut. I sometimes don't think Chris appreciated that. Uh, or appreciate. I know he knew it in his heart that that was true, but I don't think he appreciated what an achievement it was. Uh and it was an achievement at the expense of every other section of the library and it was accepted by every other section of the library and I would say that was down to Chris's uh, conversion or education of the other members of the library uh, he got it across very well and very quickly um, what the urgency was and most, almost 100% support from the library Uh, Of course he wanted those ten million extra tomorrow and couldn't understand why they didn't appear. The jobs were not frozen in conservation until two years ago. We were the only part of the library where if somebody left we didn't have to wait six months or twelve months or lose the job altogether. Some of the curatorial departments have been ravaged in the last five or six years. And they'll take they'll never recover, I don't believe, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, we are just about where we were when Chris came, apart from him, so we did achieve something there, I think, and now it is true to say, and has been for several years, that on the great annual occasions when the librarian gives his account to the Friends, when the proctors give their account to the university at large of the year, and when the vice-chancellor finally sums up the year's doing, every time there is some mention of the great need for conservation in the libraries and the great need in Bodley for conservation. Now, it's easy to be very cynical about statements like that, but believe me, to achieve that in six years in Oxford is an achievement, there are other things where they've been trying for 300 years and they're still waiting to be recognised staff has been a major problem you'd better just shout when you want Uh, staff has been my major concern I suppose Um, I think many of our troubles which I hinted at at the beginning uh, have to be carried by the library profession I think in the 1960s and the 1970s, and it seems so strange to say it in these walls because this was probably the one great exception. Um, most library schools turn their backs totally on books, and I suspect if you went to a library school and with the sort of remark that my generation went, "Why do you want to be in a library? Well, I like books," you'd have been kicked out. You'd never have got in. Uh, you know, I really do not, and it's not because Terry's sat there. You, we can never overestimate what Terry's done through that period of Colombia. He's kept it as an oasis in a very arid world for those people. And it has affected not just this country, but our country too. It's been the only civilized place for some of us to come to. In... England, I don't think any library school was interested particularly. There were odd teachers in library schools who just got terribly desperate about the situation. I will never forget, some three or four years ago, as recently as that, the Library Association called a seminar and I was given 20 minutes to say what we needed from librarians to help with conservation. And I felt there was only one thing I could say in 20 minutes, really. So I made an appeal that they put something called bibliography or book history back into the core curriculum. The most distinguished head of the most distinguished library school in England, probably, followed me to the rostrum. And his opening remark was, if Mr. Turney thinks we have time to talk about books in library schools, he has another thing coming. And I've never really recovered from that remark to this day. Now, I must say that I think it has improved. And I think it is improving on the back of conservation. Because conservation is once again drawn librarians' attention to the fact that it's books we're talking about, ultimately. And there are signs, I think, at home, very slowly... That there might just be some attention being paid to these matters again, but I—I I mean, I'm right behind Chris and some of the conservators when they lay a lot of the blame on the last two decades of library education. As for conservation training, Britain's a hodgepodge. We have not really come to terms with it. There are conservation courses of one sort or another for one kind of object or another all over the country. It's a fashionable subject. And they all are at different levels and different quality people coming out. And all you can do is test the water and hope that if you find a good person from Guildford next year they'll probably produce another good person or that you'll find a good person from Camberwell or Gateshead or wherever. It doesn't always work, of course. Good people tend to be good wherever they've been in spite of where they've been. Uh, we've been lucky. We haven't restricted ourselves to England. I've had Americans working for us. I've had a Canadian girl who was very good working for us. And we have people from Germany who are presently applying for jobs with us. It is a difficult one, and I do not think that we will sort it out until somebody grasps the accreditation nettle, and I cannot see who in England is going to be that body and who's going to do that. National Preservation Advisory Office, I think, should be doing it, but that's under the auspices of the British Library, and they won't touch it with a barge pole, but I think sooner or later. Somebody has got to say that there has got to be a core course, at least in every school, that is accredited, so that we do know that there are certain basic standards being taught in every school. And I'm very pleased that in a very recent report by the Museums and Galleries people, for the Museums and Galleries Commission, they are suggesting exactly the same in the museum world for conservation people. They think we're, they say, conservation is one of the best areas for training in Britain uh, in the museum world. Um, they're perhaps a bit better off than we are on objects than we are on books. It's too early to see what Chris's new venture will produce. Uh, those of you who don't know, he's left us to go and set up a training course in a private institution or a private under the auspices, of the umbrella, of a private foundation which specialises in training for the crafts. And Chris has been given uh, nice funds to set up workshops and begin training conservation binders. But it's going to take many years, I think, before he produces enough to really affect the picture in Britain. And I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be such an expensive business going through Chris's course that the people he produces will never be able to come and work for us. They'll all disappear into private practice somewhere. Well, that will help. Most of my staff problems come from a very tight situation within the university. Uh, When I inherited uh, these people who I've I've spoken about, all my binders and everybody were what we call clerical grades, they were looked after by the National Association of Local Government Offices as a union. Nothing was relevant, really. Um, we had from 82 to 83 a university subcommittee of the, the university staff committee looked into the whole business of conservation staff in Bodley and decided they should be put on clerical grades. I adopted the policy from the beginning that these were professional people and I could not see why they were not put on the same grades or parallel grades to the professional librarians. I've got to say that was anathema to the university. Um, and intellectual snobbery did played no small part in it. Uh, it is not a graduate profession in, in, in England. I think I would resist it entirely becoming a graduate profession you would cut yourself off from a lot of very good craftspeople. if you said it had to be a graduate profession but until there's a graduate piece of paper you can wave in front of the universities you're going to have a great deal of trouble in getting a sort of parallel professional grades accepted in the universities now again there's a chink of light because in the museums and galleries world and in the libraries world For government departments, or for the British Library and people like that, they are now accepted as curatorial grades. They're put into the equivalent of curatorial grades. So that's a big step forward, and it may be that sooner or later it will be the lever we can use against the universities. But at present, we're a long way from there. Because of this very rigid structure and job descriptions... I find myself in a dilemma, and that is that I have found over the last two or three years there's an annual reviewing system, and over the last two or three years I've found, and good luck to them in a sense, that junior staff who I've encouraged to go on courses, I've paid for to go on courses we've said to them will you, in a very small group of course, will you look after photography, will you you know start to specialize in photographic conservation uh, start to look into leather, start to look into paper the next year they have every right to do this and I'm not grumbling, they come back and say I've been given the responsibility for this they go to the review committees who are made up of people not even working in libraries and they convince them of this and they're upgraded so the very careful structure that was designed in 82-83 has been made a nonsense of and what's more all the promotion that has gone on in my section in the last three years has gone on against our wishes by people adjudicating outside the library now that worries me it really does worry me um Because it, it, just because I I find myself writing on people, good staff members' reports every year, I do not agree with them, I do not think they should. Um, And because it will upset the balance, it will do this, that. And it's not helping morale, it's not helping relationships within the group. Uh, Because sooner or later you see everybody above one has been left out. So then you have to go and fight for that one to get the structure back again. And it's a very difficult situation. I don't know how, how whether you have a similar situation or not, but I find that a very difficult one, and I find it not a, an easy one personally to handle with the staff. Well, I'd perhaps better be drawing to a close. I think I would be writing saying that for Chris, one of the major problems in the ten years has been materials, we've gone into this before I think but in the UK the supply of <coughs> conservation quality, archival quality materials was not good when we started, it was almost non-existent there are a few firms just beginning to set up in it most of it was being imported from here from Hollinger, people like that we had very few of our own supplies where you did find a supplier uh, you'd go back two years later and they, they disappeared. I remember we had marvellous boot cloth problems. We had marvellous cloth which Tony Keynes had got made in, in Northern Ireland for himself and we rode on the back of that order and we went back two years later. They still had the machinery for doing it but they'd just make the only two men who could do it redundant. Um, and you had problem like that after one after another. I think that is improving. There are signs that that's improving. Atlantis, people like that are coming along now really quite strongly, and it's much more easy, as it, easy for us as it were to go to the shelves and buy off the shelves. It's not easy for us when we want a new material because none of us outside the British Library, who are ruling to themselves, have the financial clout. So this is forcing us, as automationists, forced libraries into much more cooperation. And I think that's all to the good. And I think it it is quite common now for Tony in Dublin to ring, well, up to six months ago, Chris in Oxford, and we'd ring Alan Ferrand up in Cambridge, and Greenwich and VNA and Manchester and we'd sort of pot an order in and build it up together. And I think that's the only way we can carry on. Well, I think there'll be opportunities for any specific questions later. I suppose one could go on forever on this. Um, of course the new game for us is fundraising. This is, of course, what Mrs. Thatcher wanted, I suppose, when she started those cuts. She said to us, you go out and raise your own money. Now, for American librarians, that doesn't perhaps seem as strange as it does for us. And perhaps we have been cosseted over the years. Uh, But it's a new game, and we are not trained to do it, and we are having to learn very rapidly. Uh, Perhaps David said something about it earlier in the year. But we're about to launch in Oxford a mammoth appeal for the university. The first, uh, when I left home, the first Bodleian uh, figure which was being quoted was that in June the Bodleian will launch an appeal for £10 million over the next five years. Terry, who was always a step ahead of me, has a different figure by the time I get here. Um, but you can see the sort of operations we're moving into. We've just successfully raised half a million in 18 months to buy a ch- the Opie collection. So it looks like we're an attractive uh, proposition to some people. The way it's being done is to provide packages, and there are already several conservation packages, as it were, in the marketplace waiting to be picked up. Uh, chiefly, the one I've mentioned, the refurbishing, the restructuring of the general boundary that's a big one we want to get pretty quickly. Another one is the, a program of conservation On the books in Duke Humphrey and Art's End, those of you who know Bodley, that beautiful uh, room which which we're celebrating 500 years of this year, but which Thomas Bodley in 1600 refurnished and filled with books, the books are looking pretty tatty. And what we want to do is have a programme for about five years on those. And I was lucky. Other people's misfortunes occasionally work in our favour. Nicholas Pickwood's main assistant, chief assistant uh, left to marry an Oxford Dom and so she has joined us when Chris left not replacing Chris but in a quite separate role uh, to carry out over the next 12 months the preliminary survey of those books do some refurbishing we don't want to go in mad too quickly so we're letting her do a bit of repair as she goes along but basically over the next 12 months uh, pulling together the appeal as it were, pulling together we've already got the appeal out in general terms, but giving us a lot more factual information about that area. We want new exhibition cases which seems to have become a conservation responsibility we want an off-site facility all that boxing operation a lot of print finishing and all that, but the general boundary has to be Uh, to do could easily go off site freeing room for these additional binders on site and we're hoping uh, that before too long we'll be able to have a facility off site that has always been from the very word go one of the bones of contention and it's still slightly there and worries me and I'd like to leave you with this thought It has always been very much in the centre of Chris and Judy and my thinking that we should remain on site, that the main conservation workshops and the main conservation effort should be in the building. There's a strong argument, and there always has been, ever from the beginning, in the university, that we could quite easily be put on an industrial estate somewhere on the outskirts of the because the stuff could be taken to us. Well, apart from the handling conditions, I think the one we hang on to most is that psychological effect of having us in the library. We're the thorn under the flesh of it. We're the irritant. We're the constant reminder to those people that it matters, and we see what's going on, and they hear from us daily. And I think that we've got to maintain. Some of the jobs can go off-site, I don't deny, but I think in the long run we've got uh, to remain on-site. I would say that my staff are getting tired of this story because I've been at it now for 18 months. I would say we're on the threshold. It's do or die in the next year or so. I think Chris has laid the groundwork. I think he's set up several programmes Uh, which we know work, we have confidence in them now, and really it is, I believe, a question of throwing money at the problem. I think we've solved some of the problems, as far as we are concerned, if we had the money. And it's not altogether money, it is mainly money for bodies now to do the work, but not necessarily very highly trained bodies in some areas. That face-boxing program could be pushed on at a tr- tremendous pace if we just had three or four more people uh, making face-boxes. Okay, thanks.